This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Master. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Sometimes is a fast lane, sometimes a slow lane when it comes to Tesla. Shares of Tesla, though, trading higher today, but still off uh, almost 30% from that recent October 2017 high. What's going on, though? We've had the Model 3 production missing analysts and Tesla's on forecast, as investors expected, but Tesla's saying it sees progress ahead. Let's break it down with our own David Welch. He's Detroit Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News with us from our bureau in Detroit. David, the ups and downs of being Tesla investors for the most part seem to go along with some of those down points, uh, especially when it comes to production cycles, but they're signing on again. What's going on today with Tesla? Yeah, it seems to be, uh, you know, in for a dime, in for $45 billion. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's how it works. So they, they, they missed their production estimates again. Uh, but within that, uh, within the 8K, within the press release they filed, CEO Elon Musk is saying that they will rapidly accelerate production uh, throughout the second quarter and you know, get up to the levels where they're supposed to be. And investors are taking his word on that, that he's going to hit the numbers that he frequently misses and finally get there. You know, what's crazy, right, David, is that was it last week, the week before, we were talking a lot about Tesla and saying they're not going to make their numbers, they're not going to make their numbers. So I don't know if, you know, shame on us for being managed really well by Tesla or, you know, hey, okay, they're, we know they're not great with their production numbers, but they're getting there. Well, what I was looking at with Tesla a week ago when, when it was leaking out that they probably weren't going to hit the 2500 a week was – Will the street believe whatever explanation Elon has in the letter to shareholders or in the press release? And right now you have to say resoundingly that they are. The shares are up almost 7% right now. So investors are clearly saying, okay, it looks like they've cleared out some of the bottlenecks. We're going to give them a pass this time and, and see what happens by the end of the next quarter. Tell me, though, about the cash burn at this company. Yeah, so they're burning on average eight or nine hundred million a quarter if you look over the last four or five quarters. They have some big debts coming due at the end of the year. Maybe they'll try to refinance them, uh, but you know their bonds are trading down, so the terms aren't going to be favorable. Um, they are still spending a lot of money to get Model Three out. They also have this semi truck and a, and a roadster that they need to uh, start working on as well. That's all engineering expense and money they need to spend on R and D. They have battery factories they want to put up. So Tesla's exact cash position is a little unknown in the sense that it depends on a few things. We know what the basic burn rate is, but how much do they spend on some of these other projects, or do they delay them a bit because cash is getting short, number one? Number two, how much comes in the door as Model 3 production does stay? It will, clearly, it's going to increase to some degree. And to the extent that it does, you're getting cars sold and cash coming in the door, that could uh, forestall the burn rate uh, and, and the need to raise money. But the estimates we're seeing out there from different analysts is that they're going to need to raise about $2 billion later in the year. 
Yeah, the math is kind of interesting on this one. David Welch, thank you. Detroit Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News. David joining us uh, from our bureau in Detroit. As I mentioned, shares of Tesla, they are trading higher today. In fact, up 6.9% as we speak. $17.40 higher. The stock trading at $269.88 a share. USA small cap quality volatility yield factor 3% index. It's a benchmark designed to reflect the performance of stocks representing three factor characteristics. And they are, of course, quality, volatility, and yield. Our next guest firm offers an ETF based on the index. Here with more, Connor O'Brien. He is president and CEO at O'Shares ETF Investments. He joins us on the phone from Boston. They've got about $632 million in assets under management. Connor, nice to have you here on this Wednesday. I know it's based on an index, but give us some background about what this index is, is about and how it works. Sure, Carol. Great to be with you. Uh, my business partner, Kevin O'Leary, is well-known for Shark Tank and being on TV, and he's actually a very conservative investor. We developed these strategies to suit the investment objectives of his family trust. And so what they really meant is finding a way to invest in stocks that meet criteria for high profitability, low leverage, and all that means quality, and then strong dividend yield and uh, lower volatility. As we end up with a portfolio that's relatively conservative, companies that just keep generating earnings and uh, compounding their, their returns for investors. All right. So what does that lead – like what kind of companies does that ultimately lead you to? Well, it's over 150 stocks typically uh, out of the uh, 500 or so largest uh, market cap stocks in the U.S. That's in the ETF ticker OUSA. Mm-hmm. All cap ticker OUSM, it's about 250 stocks from the 2,000 stocks in the uh, small cap universe. And so it's big, steady, well-established companies across just about all industry sectors. In a market and, where there's been so much volatility, though, um, Connor, I'm curious about, since volatility is certainly one of the things that this index and consequently this fund takes into account, how's it doing in terms of performance or underperformance or outperformance? Yeah, generally speaking, about 20% less volatility, less downside. If you look at the long-term data on up capture, down capture, you get about 85% of the market upside and about 60% of the market downside. So it's a little bit of winning by, by losing less. Uh, if you look at the fund performance since inception, it's uh, within about 200 basis points of the typical large cap index with a lot less risk. So from a risk-adjusted point of view, it's it's quite a win for people that want a slightly lower risk approach to equities. Right. And then you've also got the dividend, right, that's helping out in terms of performance. Yeah, the the, uh, the income matters to a lot of people, and uh, it's really a consequence of the rules that run the portfolio. When you guys look at this market, I mean, you know, we say, all right, volatility is back, but it's a lot more normal than what we saw kind of last year when it seemed so complacent and the market just seemed to go in one direction, and that is up. I'm talking, of course, about the equity markets in here. Um, when you look at this market, a lot more opportunity uh, for you guys? Well, these are rules-based portfolios, so really the opportunities for the investors to choose when it's time for them to reduce their exposure to the uh, high-growth, high-volatility stocks and perhaps move some money back to the the safer, own-it-for-the-long-term type of portfolios as you have in OUSA and OUSM. Maybe a better question is, because we've constantly had that uh, discussion going on about active versus passive. So I'm curious about, we mentioned the, the amount of assets that you guys have under management. So in this more volatile environment, talk to me a little bit about the investment flows where people are maybe seeking out these strategies. Are you seeing more new money come in? And if so, how much and at what rates? 
Yeah, I guess that's an interesting question. Very long-term ETFs have been attracting massive flows and well over $500 billion a year. Right. And we, t- we tend to see it's, – it's an interesting question. We were just talking about it yesterday. We see more buying of OUSA and OUSM on down days as people look for safer investments perhaps. You never know exactly why people are doing what they do, but uh, that is one of the, the fact patterns that we see. Okay, so you're seeing more money come in, new money come in specifically. Right. Well, trading on New York Stock Exchange, you don't always see uh, right. whose money it is. It could be existing investors adding to their positions. It could be new money adding uh, new tickers to their portfolios to reduce the risk of their portfolios. Connor, you know, ETFs are an interesting group. You know, you, you, you pick the index, you set it, and you kind of leave it because <laughs> that's kind of how it works. Uh, and people like it because that means, you know, there's typically lower fees and so on. But when you look at some of the bigger macro investing stories that are going out there, are, are going on, whether it's from taxes, whether it's uh, concerns about trade policy and trade wars, what are the ones that kind of garner the most discussion uh, over at your place? Well, first thing, on the efficiency point, and this is not really the, the – uh, the trade tax issue, but the personal tax issue for taxable investors, ETFs are terrific. And if you look at mutual funds, generally they will push out to investors a capital gains tax liability every year of 5 to 10%. ETFs generally zero, even if they have the exact same portfolio and the exact same portfolio adjustments because they're structured differently. So the investor actually gets a better long-term compounding of their investment using an ETF as opposed to a mutual fund. But in terms of the themes that are out there in the markets now, I think uh, a lot of it's driven by politics and a lot of uh, negotiation is going on, going on at the geopolitical level to try and make adjustments that are, are going to be tough for certain countries and certain industries. Right, and certainly something that uh, you guys all got to keep a watch on, even though you're t- you know, tied to that index. Connor O'Brien, thank you. President, Chief Executive Officer at O'Shares ETF Investments. Ah, but does music, and Spotify specifically, bring investors together? Of course, Spotify climbing, I should point out, after it began trading through a direct listing. That stock began trading publicly at 12.44 p.m. Wall Street time today. Let's get a look at the first day of trading for Spotify. Our Alex Barinka, deals reporter for U.S. IPOs and Tech M&A at Bloomberg News, with us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. She's been really leading us up to this uh, direct listing by Spotify. And also with us, Mike Forhouse, president at Mag Advisors, on the phone from Los Angeles. Alex, let's kick it off with you. First of all, did it play out like we anticipated? So there are a few key things that I, I want to point out um, as we start considering whether or not this is a successful direct listing for Spotify. So the shares are up compared to the reference price that the New York Stock Exchange put out, but I am actually looking closer at the opening price, that one sixty-five ninety a share. That's what I'm going to be comparing this to, and on that basis, it's actually down uh, a, a tick, about five percent from that opening price. The other thing I'm paying attention to is volume. About 20 million shares have changed hands. The opening trade was about 5.6 million shares. That's all according to Bloomberg data. That is fairly low. Um, There are more than 100 million tradable shares out there of folks who could be selling. And my sources told me yesterday going into this offering that one of the concerns was not having enough supply of shares. If there's not enough supply, there could be a liquidity squeeze that drives up the valuation of this company to levels that are unsustainable. 
right now. It's trading at about a $30 billion valuation, which is the highest it's ever traded. So I think that that jury is still out. Uh, we probably won't know uh, for a few more days of trading. And as we watch the volatility in the stock, whether this current level is warranted in the eyes of the public markets. But I will definitely be keeping an eye on how many shares are trading hands and at what price compared to that uh, 165.90 opening price that we saw this morning. Mike Forhouse, President Maggot Advisors. Alex, eloquently breaking down uh, that direct listing by Spotify today. How do you see how it played out? Uh, yes, Carol, I think Alex nailed it. Uh, supply problem because of the nature of the, the listing versus an IPO, and then just look at it coming off of the opening uh, of the stock trading. You know, it's just down, down, down. And uh, I find with these internet stocks that you also have kind of a longer term correction. It's not at all uncommon. We saw it again in Snap, we saw it in Facebook. This kind of post IPO correction, and then the companies with real consumers and real businesses bounce back. And by the way, Spotify's got, you know, exactly that. It's got a real business, it's got a real worldwide business. Well, you know, and that's what I wanted to follow up with you, Alex. You know, here it is. You know, in terms of how it's it's trading today and how it's come to public, you know, I don't know how to kind of read whether or not this is a good idea, direct listing, or is market volatility, the overall market environment a little bit at play today, or is it also, you know, we've got concerns about the music streaming industry, even though, you know, different companies do it differently, you know, it's one that has been plagued by problems and failures and inability to make money. It has, and I think it's a bit of the former and the latter. I think it's the direct listing um, is playing into how this is trading. Again, my sources tell me that the company and its advisors wanted this to trade like a normal trading day. They didn't want to see a big move in the shares one way or another. And also that last point, um, the fact that Spotify really is kind of uh, the one who can claim a lot of of credit for the recovery in the music industry. It's given uh, kind of the best opportunity to invest in the music business. Apple Music has not performed as well, and it's not its own company. Pandora has also not necessarily done very well. It's valued at only about $1.2 billion, so it's a much smaller company. So, you know, Spotify has kind of attracted um, the listeners and the, uh, the the musicians, the music, the content creators through the labels uh, to kind of the, the nexus for for folks listening to music. So I think those are the two things that are going to continue driving. Um, it's going to be the dynamics around the trading, the dynamics around the supply and demand uh, sliding scale, and then also uh, the longer term bets on Spotify as a company. Mike, you watch this you know, music streaming industry, and, and as I mentioned, you know, there's highs and lows, and there's a lot of lows out there. What do you see as Spotify's place within it? Well, you know, it's... Uh it's a crazy competitive situation. It reminds me of when we had six or seven search engines, and none of those were named Google. <laughs> and almost all of those are now gone. Um, so this is kind of fight club. I mean, you've got big guys throwing big punches. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about Amazon yet in this uh, segment, but, you know, they've got an amazing brand, and, of course, Prime has been super successful. So uh, Amazon's going to get a good chance in here, too. My, my guess is Spotify or Amazon end up being the winners in this space. Oh, interesting. And Alex, what do you hear when you think, you know, with all the names that are out there? 
I think that Spotify has the business model that folks will bet on. Paid streaming accounted for about 40% of the U.S. music industry sales last year. That's the bulk of of Spotify's revenue generation system is getting folks to pay for these subscriptions to get the music. So when I talk to folks anecdotally, when I think of, of who investors in the community are using, when I think of uh, kind of the, the user base that Spotify has, it seems like they're ahead. Again, this is the age of, of the internet and it moves very quickly. You never know but with content being so expensive and these deals with uh the uh the the music shops these licensing deals being so expensive and the negotiating process so long it seems like the first mover advantage is one you can actually put a premium on for spotify all right and it sounds like we're gonna have to be watching how this uh stock trades in the days and weeks to come alex barinka thank you deals reporter for us ipos and tech mna at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. And our thanks to Mike Vorhouse as well, back with us. He's president at Maggot Advisors. He joined us on the phone from Los Angeles. Right now, Spotify shares, they are just up about 14%. This is Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed. John Williams, welcome to New York. He is now the new head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Let's talk a little bit about that. Michael McKee is with us. He follows this story and all things the Fed. He is international economics and policy correspondent at Bloomberg News. Also joining our conversation, Dennis Kelleher, president and CEO at the nonprofit Better Markets. It's a Washington-based group that has pushed for stricter financial regulation. But, Mike, I'm going to kick it off with you. No surprise. Well, no surprise because the name was leaked, but it's certainly not the person that people were expecting because after uh, Bill Dudley announced that he was going to retire, the New York Fed made a big deal out of making this a broad, inclusive search for diversity, and then they came up with another white male. Uh, John Williams is extraordinarily well qualified, and the search committee makes the case that he was by far the best candidate and that he has a good record in promoting diversity as the head of the San Francisco Fed. And he may be a great guy, but he's going to disappoint people who were looking for maybe a symbolic hire, somebody who's qualified, but somebody who would send a message to the world. Well, I said this to Kathleen Hayes earlier when we were having a little bit of this conversation. And I said, well, you know what? I'm all for certainly um, supporting, promoting, uh, and advancing women. But is... I also believe in getting the right person for the right job at the right time. Is is that the case with John Williams? Well, that's the argument that the search committee makes. That You've got a Fed board of governors that is extraordinarily short on bodies, let alone talent. I mean, they've only got three governors. They don't have a vice chair. Jay Powell is the new chair, and he is not an economist. Uh, there's no prospect of getting a vice chair anytime soon. So moving John Williams into the New York Fed seat makes a lot of sense from a monetary policy standpoint. People make a big deal out of him not having market experience, but really he's been in the front lines of talking about the markets for the last seven, eight years. Right. And, uh, you know, Tim Geithner didn't have any market experience. Jerry Corrigan didn't have market experience, to name two former New York Fed presidents. So that's not such a big deal. Uh, it's, it's really the optics of the whole thing. Got it. Hey, Dennis Kelleher, come on in on this. Uh, are you comfortable with John Williams? Do you think this was a good appointment? 
Well, first of all, I think Mike uh, hit all the key issues exactly right, although I would say it's not really just optics. Um, you know, you, the press and the media generally tend to focus on one rather than uh, many factors when there's a multi-factor test. And in this case, diversity isn't just gender and isn't just ethnicity, although those are both really important, but it's also diversity of experience and diversity of thinking. You know, what we really need to do is get get the diversity of the American public reflected in the leadership of the Fed. And with that, hopefully, with diversity of experience, diversity of thinking, and yes, diversity of gender and ethnicity, um, we'll get the benefit of all 320 million Americans rather than looking in, a, in an incredibly subset of that um, vast tableau of the country. And so, and it's not just optics. I mean, one of the things to, to us that's most important is that the Fed needs to rebuild its credibility with the American people um, and not just come out of the milieu that thinks what's good for Wall Street is what's good for America. We need to get back to thinking that's actually what's good for America. It's not only good for America, but it's good for Wall Street and good for finance. And importantly, let's be clear, in, in one sense, um, the appointment of Mr. Williams actually has moved uh, the conversation quite significantly in the sense that, you know, Bill Dudley was the former chief economist for Goldman Sachs. I mean, we do have somebody who doesn't come out of the Wall Street milieu, who doesn't necessarily have the reflex that what's good for the biggest banks in the country is what should be, uh, by and large, Fed policy. So there is a small step in the right direction uh, in, in, this, in that uh, sense and with that factor. And Mike is right, too. There's no question that in a monetary policy, Mr. Williams is uh, highly qualified. And as Janet Yellen has made a point of telling everyone, uh, she views it's not only highly qualified, but an incredibly good pick. And we're at a unique moment with the Fed, not only because, as Mike said, we only have three governors, mm. uh, only one of which, uh, Lael Brainard, has been there for a significant period of time. Jay Powell has been there, the chair, for a number of years, but only chair recently. And Randy Quarles has only been there for a couple of months. So one of the things Jay Powell really needed was not only a strong economist with a good, strong monetary policy background, but somebody who knows the Fed. And uh, John, uh, uh, Mr. Williams knows the Fed. Right. And I think that's really what uh, Mr. Powell was looking for. Now, we also want somebody who's willing to be courageous and stand up uh, to conventional wisdom because groupthink is one of the biggest afflictions at the Fed, and it's been a problem for decades. It's this inbreeding system mm -hmm. um, that causes people to think very narrowly and causes them to miss, for example, not just the dot-com bubble and crash, but, the but most crisis. recently the 2008 financial crash. Just got about 40 seconds left here. So, Mike, what does this mean, though, potentially uh, as, you know, with him? He was with the San Francisco Fed, right? He's now with the New York Fed. What does it mean, though, in terms of composition for the Fed? Does it change any way? Of, in, well, it doesn't change any of uh, the faces around yeah. the table. Uh, Bill Dudley leaves. He comes in, but he's been at all the meetings. And yes, he gets a permanent vote, but he's already contributed right. on a regular basis. We'll have to see who comes in to the San Francisco Fed. Mary Daly, the research director, ever Everybody touts her as a favorite, and of course she's a woman, so that could change the composition of things. And then if President Trump ever gets around to appointing <laughs> anybody to the Fed, we, we might see some changes. There's so many open spots. Dennis, you got to be quick. 15 seconds here. What would be one of the top things in terms of financial regulation that you want this new New York Fed chief to deal with very quickly? I want him to deal concretely with the culture problem that we have at the Fed that doesn't prioritize got it. Um, American public's interest in stability. Got it. Dennis Callahan and Michael McKee, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car.
For the drive to the close, let's head to Baltimore, Maryland. Barry Bannister is head of institutional equity strategy at Stiefel, and he joins us uh, on the phone from Baltimore. Hey, nice to have you back with us. Um, you know, it's funny. I was looking over your research note that you sent over. You seem pretty concerned about the outlook for stocks. Talk to us about your outlook. Yeah, at the beginning of the year on January 26th, which was just luck because that was the 28th uh, 70 or so high for the S&P 500. We wrote a note saying the first quarter would feature a correction. What we had determined was is that the earnings outlook was really good, and we had a great move because of earnings growth due to the tax cut. But interest rates had to catch up, and indeed they did, uh, also canceling out the what was called the low volatility trade caused a market pullback. Now our concerns have moved beyond that. I think uh, what we're concerned about the most is the potential for policy missteps and the realization by investors that there's a lot of fakery going on in the market. The We call it fake interest rates. Hmm. Uh, rates are simply uh, manipulated and, depre- and, and uh, repressed. And as a, as a consequence, investors are somewhat lulled into believing that low rates means higher valuations for stocks, when in fact those rates on a global central bank level are just purely manipulated. And uh, maybe they're starting to see through that. There's also some risk on the credit side that concerns us, and there's a few other factors, but that's that's what our note was about. All right. So, I mean, if perchance we see companies, though, continue to produce earnings and earnings growth specifically, more importantly, revenues and revenue growth, might something like that change your mind? Yeah, we uh, we have not said that it would be anything more. It would not be a recession. It would not be uh, the recession type bear market, which in the last 50 years, the recession bear markets averaged 30 percent drops. We we don't think a recession's on the horizon. But if you look at non-recession major corrections or bear markets, the last 50 years, they averaged minus 18 percent. And that would be, you know, off of uh uh, the recent high, we were down as low as minus 11 at, at one point. And so that is what we're worried about. It's more of a policy error and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, difficulty, you know, difficulty for the Fed, difficulty for European Central Bank, difficulty for Japan to exit their extraordinarily easy monetary policy that have lowered interest rates and raised asset values. It's interesting, too, though, in this note, Barry, you, you note about the, di- the next bear market may be rapid, followed by a lost decade. Uh, and you talk about, you know, maybe an abysmal decade ahead for stocks at some point. I mean, this is what you guys are anticipating and expecting? Well, as much as you can have no doubt, we have no doubt about that And in terms of the S&P 500. The central banks, uh, through this outright money printing and rate repression, have simply front-loaded approximately 20 years of return into the 10 years since 2008. Remember in 2009, we bottomed on the S&P 500 at 666 in March of 2009. It's hard to imagine, Uh, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, we're we're already, you know, we're, we were pushing 2,900 just a, a couple months ago. Right. So that's quite a bull market. And it front-loaded essentially 20 years return. We use a household ownership of stock model, a multiple-year average called CAPE model, and mm-hmm. we use a thing called Tobin's Q, which is price replacement book. They have very high predictive capabilities on forward 10-year returns, and they're lining up at around – uh, around zero to two percent on a forward ten-year basis for a total return. Now the good news is, I mean, it's bad for an index fund, but it's good for an active manager because you lower the bar and you can outperform that. And it's actually very bullish for stock picking, market timing, and uh, active managing and uh, hedge funds. Even it's bearish for people who just piled into index funds and rode the index uh, the last ten years. Right, which has been very easy to do. So how do how does the trade that we're seeing seeing in technology some of the big tech names um, support what you're what you're seeing and, and support kind of that overall outlook in stocks well if you look at the I heard you mentioning the fang earlier mm-hmm. uh, on the show and then if you add Nvidia Microsoft and Apple to that those uh, uh, seven stocks have accounted for 35 percent of the total 60 percent growth in the stock market since December 31st, 2013. So more than half of the gain has come from seven stocks. And that's why indexing, of course, worked. Um, And the other reason is they could grow in a world with very low inflation, what we call disinflation or borderline deflation. They could grow. And so they got rewarded for that with a very high P.E. multiple. But what really worries us is that the gap between the U.S. yields, let's say the 10-year note, And the foreign 10-year note, Mm -hmm. and we take a 10-country average called the the G10XUS 10-year yield, Um, that gap is near record wide. The only times it was this wide was in in the summer of 1987 and the spring of 2000 when we had the 87 crash and the tech bubble. Right. So, So very low interest rates being pulled down by global central bank actions are inflating PE multiples, and therefore high PE stocks are very vulnerable to any movement in yields, real or nominal, meaning um, after inflation or or just the, the yield you see on the newspaper. All right. So, Barry, we've just got about 35 seconds here. So defensive strategy in terms of stocks, that's what you suggest at this point? Yeah. And just until we see uh, signs of what we call reflation traction, that is, and the Fed's reaction function, which is to raise rates, until we see the dollar get a firmer footing, I don't believe a weak dollar is actually beneficial right now, until we see uh, you know, oil stabilize on stronger demand relative to supply, uh, we've been pushing the, uh, the concept of defensiveness. This is utilities and REITs and tobacco and beverages and food and so forth. Right. Until we get some visibility on growth. All right. Great to talk with you uh, on this Wednesday. Barry Bannister, head of institutional equity strategy at Stiefel, on the phone from Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.